the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I'd like to invite you to turn there, if you would. The book of Revelation, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you'll find it as the last book in the Bible. Maybe you came this morning without a Bible. You'll find one that is located directly in the pew back in front of you, and we'd invite you to turn there uh, to the book of Revelation this morning. If you did not get a study sheet when you came in today, may I say to you that whether you're a note taker or not, today is probably a very significant day for you to make sure that you've got a study sheet in order to follow along and get some of the pictures in your mind that you need to have there. So if you failed to get one when you came in, if you would lift your hand right now, our ushers will get one of those to you. But as they're, they're doing that, we don't really have any time to waste, as you can see by the, uh, the study sheet this morning. We're going to try to cover uh, a lot of ground, though we won't make uh, too many tracks as far as covering the actual verses of Revelation. We're, at this point, still just trying to provide a foundation for all of us. As I mentioned last week when we got started, every single one of us that are in this place, we're we're different levels of spiritual growth. Some of the folks that are in there here this morning, some of you, uh, you know relatively little, if anything, about the Bible, and we want you to be just as comfortable as everybody else this morning. We feel a responsibility to you, along with other people who have been walking with the Lord, some people in this church. It boggles my mind. Some people for 70 years, and they've been a part of this church all that time, and Obviously, they know probably just a little bit more than some of you do this morning. But whether you've been around forever or maybe you're just getting to the point where you're getting acquainted with the Bible, and you've probably heard people say this all of your life, just as I've heard people all of my life say this thing. But I think even though I, got, I came into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in 1972 in, in my life. So I, I've been walking with the Lord for almost 25 years now myself. Uh, I'm becoming an old man. I mean, I, it, I still feel like I'm a young guy. Watch yourself. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's mind-boggling sometimes. But I think it's, it's probably been within the, about the last six or seven years that I feel like I really understand that statement that I've heard all my life, that the Bible is a supernatural book. And you probably heard that somewhere along the way, and you probably picked it up at times and tried to figure out if it was even natural to anybody because you couldn't figure out what in the world it was saying. I've been there, and in fact, I'm still there in a lot of different places. But boy, I'll tell you, I in the last several years, through the, some of the things the Lord has, has taught this body of believers we have come to understand that the bible is a very very unique commodity that god has left us on this planet this is in a in a very unusual kind of way this is a book of history and yet because god is god god can give you history in a very unique package because he knows history before it happens in fact, what he says in his word is that he writes history before it happens. That's what happens in this book. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 9, the scripture says this, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Now, now watch what he's saying here. All of these things, we can look back in history and we can see all of these things that have come to pass, and new things do I declare, things that haven't happened yet. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, that is one thing that makes the Bible stand uh, uh, alone as the most unique book on this planet because the Bible is the only book that had the guts enough to record history before it happens. And you see, the reason I'm saying you've got to have guts to do that is because if you're ever wrong on it, then you've just taken away the supernatural quality of it. But God is a God who, before things would spring forth, He would tell you of them and write about those events before they happen. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God 
and there is none like me. I'm the only one there is, God says, and there's nobody that comes close. Why is that? Because I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God says, listen, nobody's like me because nobody's going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. I'll tell you the end of it before the beginning starts. And what I say happens, my counsel will stand. You can bank on it. And you know what? For a period of almost 4,000 years now of recorded history in the Word of God, God writing things before they would happen, not one time, not one time has the Bible ever missed in anything that it said would take place, it happened exactly the way that God said that it would, exactly when God said that it would, exactly how God said that it would. But, when you take the book of Revelation, okay, now, this brings us into our study. Now, the Bible as a whole is a very unique book of history. But when you take the book of Revelation and you put it into the context of the whole of God's revelation to man, in other words, when you put the book of Revelation, into the context of the whole Bible, the book of Revelation stands out as a very unique book of history. Okay, It's all a book of history, but of all of the book, the book of Revelation stands out as a very unique book of history. Now, normally when people talk about the book of Revelation, they don't talk about it in terms uh, of, of history. But I think it's very significant for us to understand, going into a study of this book, just what this book provides for us in terms of its content. And this is what goes in the parentheses there, the content of the book. You see, in the book of Revelation, God had a very specific thing that He was wanting to accomplish as far as the record of human history is concerned. He wanted in the content of the book of Revelation to let us know that. Now, now watch this. From Genesis to Jude, okay, that's the first 65 books of the Bible, the book of Revelation being the last, the 66th book of the Bible. But in the first 65 books of the Bible, God records for us the first 4,000 plus years of human history. And if you'll turn your study sheet sideways, I've tried to capsulize that period of time from approximately... 4004 B.C. to 90 A.D. in just kind of a concise way. And if you listen, if you want a quick biblical synopsis of history that has everything to do with your life this morning in 1997, just, just check this out. When the Bible opens, it begins with the creation of what we'll call in that first circle representing the earth, the original earth. When the Bible opens, it begins with the creation of the original earth. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning, and, and this is a actually going to take you back to a time prior to 4004 B.C., back into eternity past, the beginning, when God created the heaven and the earth. Now, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, God lets us know in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28 that this was the earth upon which His plan was fulfilled through Lucifer. And God had anointed Lucifer as the anointed cherub that covereth, and He gave to him a throne on that original earth. And Ezekiel 28 and verse 13 lets us know that that throne was in Eden, the garden of God. So Lucifer has a throne in Eden, the garden of God, on the original earth in eternity past. And from that throne, the Scripture teaches that he led beings that Job 38 and verse 7 calls sons of God to worship God, to praise Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him, to, to love Him. But... Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 15 says that there came a day when iniquity was found in him. He's got this ministry leading sons of God to worship God and glorify God and praise Him, but there came a day when iniquity was found in him. In Isaiah chapter 14, 
Verses 13 and 14 tells us exactly what that iniquity was. Lucifer said in his heart, the five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And with that, when that iniquity was found in Lucifer, the covering cherub, God judged Lucifer, and God judged that original earth. And Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 says that Lucifer became that great dragon, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. The word devil and Satan are words that mean adversary. Lucifer, the anointed cherub of God, became the adversary of God, and the original earth of God's creation became what is on your second, that second earth on your sheet. It became the chaotic earth, the chaotic earth of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where it says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, some of you, if you've not been around here for any length of time, some of you are probably saying, what in the world? I've never heard of anything like that. Well, just jot down, if you would, this next reference, Isaiah 45 and verse 18. Because if you'll look, Isaiah 45 and verse 18 says that when God created the earth, He did not create it in the state that it was in in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. God did not create it in vain. In vain is the same exact Hebrew word that was translated in Genesis 1-2 as without form and void. God says, when I created it, I didn't create it like that. It became the chaotic earth as God judged the sin and rebellion of Lucifer. But then, the last part of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of of the waters and from there all the way down to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 God gives us the record of the recreated earth that's that third earth that's on your sheet there the recreated earth where God put a new king in Eden and now God would fulfill his plan no longer through Lucifer and the sons of God now God would fulfill his plan on the earth through a human being by the name of Adam but if you'll check it out in the genealogy of Christ in Luke's gospel, when it traces the genealogy of Christ back to Adam, you find that God had a very special title for this Adam, this human being. Luke chapter 3 and verse 38 says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, now watch this, which was the, say it with me, son of God. And you start seeing a pattern developing. Lucifer and the sons of God. Adam, the son of God. And you move further through the Old Testament and you see that God now moves to fulfill His plan through a nation. The nation of Israel. And guess what God says about Israel in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. It says, Israel is my son. The pattern continues. The Old Testament closes. There's 400 years of silence. And then God moves to fulfill His plan through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 refers to Christ as the second Adam. And the point of that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam, that first Adam, all die, even so in Christ, the second Adam, shall all be made alive. And of course, Christ is God in human flesh. He who had always been was begotten as a what? A son. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The angel comes to Mary and says, That holy thing, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel says to her, That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. 
And so God fulfills His purpose through Christ. And Christ came to this earth to call out His church. Because after His ascension to the Father, the plan of God on the earth would be fulfilled through that institution. No longer an individual, no longer a nation, but now through the church. And you see, you become a part of Christ's church by receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And would you listen to what John chapter 1 and verse 12 says? But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the, say it, sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 1, John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now listen, if you never learn another thing in your life about history, and, and you can just stay on this page, we're going to be there for just a second. But, so Now listen very carefully. If you never learn anything in your whole life about history, if you never learn anything else in your whole life about the Bible, learn this. That God's plan for your life is that you become a, a son of God. Do you see that? His plan has always, always, always revolved around sons of God. What the God of this universe is wanting to have with you is a personal relationship through which you are born into his family and you become a son, or as First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter six talks about sons and daughters of God. And we enter into that relationship the moment that we call upon his son, Jesus Christ, to save us out of our sinfulness and to save us out of the wrath of God's judgment upon all of us who reject his son for our salvation. Now, there's some of you, no doubt, that are in this room this morning who came to church just like I did back in 1972 as somebody who was not a son of God, somebody who was never born into that relationship. And I want you to know at the conclusion of this service today, we're going to give you the opportunity for the plan of God to be fulfilled in your life. Today, you could become a son or a daughter of God. So as we continue through the service this morning, you may want to just be thinking about that, that God's got a plan for the earth and the universe and your life, and the plan of God all revolves around you being born into a personal relationship with Him, whereby you become a son or daughter of God. But now watch this. From Genesis to Jude... God brings you through all of that history that we just talked about from approximately 4004 B.C. when he took Adam from the dust of the ground all the way through to Jude. That's 1167 chapters of the Bible. God brings you line by line, precept by precept, all the way through that thing. 1167 chapters, 65 books, and he gives us the historical account of, of that first 4,000 plus years of human history. But then in the one remaining book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and now you can turn your sheet over if you would. This is letter B on your outline. In that one remaining book, God brings you through the last 3,000 years of human history. You see, that's what makes the book of Revelation such a unique book of, of history. God takes 65 books of the Bible and 1167 chapters to cover 4,000 years. And in only one book of the Bible, with only 22 chapters, He covers the remaining 3,000 years. You say, well, you keep talking about this 3,000 years. Well, how do you know it's 3,000 years? I mean, okay, we've got the historical record and we can go back and count and see the, the whole 4,000 gig, but... How do you know that? Well, we know that from rightly dividing the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And we talked about the fact last week 
that through diligent study and a lot of hard work, you find that what the way that God has laid out His book is that in every book of the Bible, what God does is He gives you certain keys to know how to rightly divide it. And the book of Revelation, believe it or not, though people have, have broken their neck spiritually in this book, the book of Revelation is one of the easiest books in all of the Bible to rightly divide. There's 22 chapters in the book, and within those 22 chapters something very significant happens two times. Now, all of you were here last week. Let's say it together. What happens two times in the book of Revelation? Heaven opens. Okay, good job. Heaven opens two times in the book. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens and somebody goes up. And when you look at what's going on in that verse, Revelation 4.1, what you begin to see is, Heaven is opening, there is a trumpet, there is a voice, and somebody on the earth is caught up into heaven. And you find that it is the same exact components of what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 say will take place at the rapture. The other time uh, heaven opens in, in the book is in Revelation 19 and verse 11. This time heaven opens... And somebody comes down, somebody riding on a white horse, somebody called faithful and true, somebody who the passage goes on to say his name is the Word of God. And of course, it's who? It's Christ. And that whole passage details there the second coming of Christ to the earth. Okay, And so what God does with those two events, with heaven opening there in the book of Revelation, what he does is he lets you know where you are in the book. Those two events divide the book of Revelation into three sections. In chapter 1 of Revelation, and you'll need to look at this, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, that's exactly the, the way that the Lord told John the book would be divided into three sections. He told him, write the things which thou hast seen. Okay, that's past tense. And the things which are present tense, and the things which shall be hereafter. Okay, and that's future. But, now, now listen to this. If you're ever going to get your tenses right in the book of Revelation and you know where you are and you know where you're going, you can't miss what God said or what John said about where he was when he actually wrote this book. Now we know that historically and, and physically, according to verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1, that John wrote this while he was in exile in the Isle of Patmos sometime around 90 to 96 A.D. But verse 7 lets you know that he wasn't writing this book. He wasn't writing the Revelation from the perspective of somebody standing in 90 A.D. Verse 7 says that what God had done is spiritually God had catapulted John forward in time to the time of the day of the Lord, the, the Lord's day, which biblically begins immediately following the rapture of the church up to and including the second coming of Christ. Okay, now when you put all of these pieces together and you know where the rapture falls in the book of Revelation and you know where the second coming is and you know that John is writing in three tenses from the perspective of somebody that is at the time of the day of the Lord, the book of Revelation is divided like this. Revelation Chapters 1 through 3 is that which he talked about in verse 19 was past. The things he hast seen. Past. It is the church age. Revelation chapter 4 through 19 is the present. Okay, from somebody standing at the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, this is the present tense. And this would include the tribulation to the second coming. You'll need to add a blank on your study sheet there to get second coming in there. So, Revelation 1 through 3 is the past, it's the church age. Revelation chapter 4 through 19 is the present, it's the tribulation 
up to and including the second coming. And then, of course, Revelation chapter 20 to 22 would be future. And from the perspective of somebody standing at the day of the Lord, what is it that would be future? Everything following the second coming of Christ. The millennium, the new heaven and new earth, and right on into eternity. So, from the millennium on into eternity. Do you see how simple it is to divide the Word of God if you just let the Bible be the Bible and you let God give you those keys and He divides that thing for you? And do you see what I'm saying here about the, the amount of history that is covered in this book? The 22 chapters of Revelation account for three-sevenths of all of human history. Almost 43% of all of human history is covered in this one final book of the Bible, which just happens to be the completion of God's revelation to man. Now, there's something that you need to understand about God when it comes to completing something. Okay, God comes, He goes through 65 books of the Bible, and He says, now it comes to the time where I'm going to complete my revelation to man. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm even going to call this book the book of Revelation. And I've got something very significant I want to do. I want to complete this thing. You need to understand this about God. When God thinks, God thinks in terms of seven. He thinks in sevens. And though God is is certainly sovereign, and He can and does whatever He wants to do, God is a very patterned God. He works in the Scripture according to patterns. He works according to structure. He works according to order. That's why He tells us in the church that everything is to be done decently and in order. That's because that's the way God is. He's very ordered. He's very patterned. And again, that's not my opinion. It's based on what you see in the revelation of God of how He has worked down through history. And one of the key patterns God uses is the pattern of sevens. Now, now follow this, okay? In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, God begins the recreation of the earth. And He does everything in six evenings and six mornings. And on the seventh day, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2 says, God ended His work which He had made and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. Verse 3 And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it He had rested from all His work which God had created and made. Okay, And all of a sudden, right here at the very beginning of the Bible, God is letting you know something about that seventh day. That seventh day is special. He set that one apart for Himself. You see, that's what sanctified means he set it apart for himself and it's like god is just telegraphing a message to us keep your eye on that seventh day keep your eye on that seventh day that seventh day is is mine so watch that seventh day and what you begin to notice is after god makes that statement here is that as you work your way through the bible you find that god From this point, he always counts by sevens. He counts by sevens. Let me show you what I mean. Now, you you, you see, he establishes the pattern here with seven days. He puts seven days in a week. He, He worked six, and then he rested on the seventh. And when God laid out the law for the Jew, he told them in Exodus 23 and verse 12, Six days thou shalt do thy work, and on the seventh thou shalt rest. You know what? That's just what God did, isn't it? See, a a pattern is beginning to develop. When God laid out the Ten Commandments, He told them in Exodus 20 and verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, there's a lot of material out right now on the book of Revelation, I'm afraid that maybe some of you might be getting a hold of this information 
In fact, somebody brought it, some to me last week. A lot of information being put out by the, the Seventh-day Adventist when it comes to the book of Revelation and end times and some of the principles that we're talking about here with this number seven, that Seventh-day Adventist, you've got to watch. They've got, they understand some things. They just they misplace the Jew, and so they get a little bit out of whack on, on some things. The, the obvious question is, well, if that seventh day is, is so special, then why is it that Christians observe as the day of worship the first day of the week? Sunday, of course, yeah, we think in terms of that's the last day of the week. Our week kind of starts on Monday because of our work schedules. But Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday would, would be the seventh day. So why is it that we, if the seventh day is, is so special, if it's so significant, and why is it? that we don't worship on the, the, the seventh day. And the reason we don't is because we're Christians. We're not Jews. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 says that God gave the Sabbath to the Jews and that it was to be a sign between He and the children of Israel. Not Gentiles. Not the church. Israel. Jews. We've seen, as we've talked about it in our study over the last several years, and for some of you that are new to this thing, it's just a biblical truth. If you lose sight of the Jew in the Bible, you're going to lose your neck. The Jew is what is going to keep you straight in that thing. And you know what the Seventh-day Adventists are doing? They're taking a sign that God gave to the Jew and try to and they're trying to apply it to the church. They're making themselves Jews when they are not. In Revelation chapter 2, we'll see this in a couple of weeks or months or something like that. We're going to see that God says that that is blasphemy. You watch the New Testament and you'll find that the Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. The Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 on the first day of the week in acts chapter 20 the disciples met on the first day of the week in first corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2 where paul gave instruction about new testament giving he said bring it with you when you gather upon the first day of the week you see that's why we meet on the first day of the week we're the church but god lays all of this out in seven days Seven was the day, Genesis 2, 2 says God ended His work. It is the number. The number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. It's the number of perfection in the Bible. And because it is, when God does something, He does it by sevens. And what you find is that when you hit seven in the Bible, you start over. It's just like the pattern here with the days of the week. You hit seven, and what do you do? You start over. And all through the Bible, what God does is He just wears you out with sevens. As we've seen, the Sabbath was the seventh day. Noah took all of the animals into the ark, and He brought them in by, what, twos, right? But He took the clean animals in by sevens. Those were the ones that God was going to use to make sacrifices. After Noah entered the ark, there were seven days of grace before the rain began to fall. Jacob served seven years for Rachel. There were seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in Egypt. In the book of Joshua, the children of Israel marched around Jericho seven days and on the seventh day they marched around it seven times with seven priests with seven trumpets leading the way this may sound weird to you take it for what it's worth there's only three angels in the bible that are ever mentioned by name michael gabriel and lucifer and all of them have seven letters in their name the candlestick in the tabernacle had seven branches solomon was seven years in building the temple and when it was done the feast lasted seven days job had seven sons when god's tribulation started and his friends came to visit they sat seven days 
and seven nights in silence, and then offered seven rams and seven bullocks. Naaman the leper washed in the Jordan seven times. In Leviticus 16, the blood was to be sprinkled before the mercy seat seven times. God gave the children of Israel seven feasts. When Jesus was on the cross, he spoke seven times. I think it's time to change your sheet for all of you who are asleep. In the book of Acts, they chose out seven men of honest report as the first deacons. When we come to the book of Revelation, and watch this now, the book that marks the completion of the Bible, okay, the completion, the number seven, what you find is that this book, the book of Revelation, is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor by him who stands in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks and from the seven spirits before his throne where there burned seven lamps of fire and it was sent to the seven stars or seven angels of the seven churches there is a seven sealed book which is opened by a lamb having seven horns and seven eyes seven seals are opened seven angels sound seven trumpets seven angels pour out seven golden vials containing the last seven plagues there's a beast with seven heads a dragon with seven heads and seven crowns there are seven mountains and seven kings and all 59 times in the book of Revelation alone, God just hammers seven. Now, is there anybody here wondering whether or not there's any significance to the number seven in the Bible? I mean, it's just unbelievable. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and now I'd like for you to take your Bible and go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see here that God lays out a pattern that He works in terms of seven days. He worked six and rested on the seventh. Okay, now you got that? He worked six and He rested on on the seventh, and you know good and well that he wasn't resting because he was worn out from speaking the world into existence. The Bible said he just spoke and it came into existence. So it's not like after six days, he's just coming to the end of this thing. If I could just get some rest. No. God's trying to show you something here. But what's interesting is as you continue to work your way through the Scripture, what you find is not that not only does God work by seven days, but He also works by seven weeks. Now, we'll, we'll sh- I'll show you the pattern here in Genesis just a, just a second. Let me, let me just show you this. He also works by seven weeks. That is, seven days. He takes that pattern of seven days times seven. In, in Levit- Leviticus 23, verse 15, he talked about counting seven Sabbaths. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 9, he talked about numbering seven weeks, the day of Pentecost. You know, what, you know when it was? It was seven weeks after Passover, after 49 days. In fact, Penta means what? 50. It was on the 50th day, after seven weeks, after 49 days. So what I want you to see is God counts by seven. Seven days, seven weeks, but he also works by seven months. In Leviticus 23, 24, God told him to count six months, and in that seventh month, they would have three special observances, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement. Okay? So seven months. So here we go. Seven days, seven weeks, seven months and it doesn't stop there he also works in terms of seven years in leviticus 25 verses 1 through 6 he told them to work the land six years and then on the seventh year they were to give the land rest in exodus 21 verses 1 through 6 they were to work their slave uh, slaves six years and on the seventh they were to let them go and then he even takes it further in leviticus 25 verses 8 through 13 God shows you that he also counts and works in terms of seven weeks of years. Okay? 
So we've got seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years, seven weeks of years. In other words, seven Sabbaths of years, or seven years times seven, 49 years. God said, all right, we're going to go for 49 years, and then I want you to sound a trumpet. It'll be the trumpet of Jubilee. The year of that 50th year was called the year of Jubilee, and the land was to rest after 49 years, or seven weeks of years. And all the slaves were set free, and you were starting over. So do you see the pattern? The pattern is one, two, three, four, five, six, rest on that seventh, that seventh day. Okay, so we got seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years, seven weeks of years. And now, you know, you go through all of that and you begin to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm with you. There's definitely a pattern there. Something is happening. But what in the world is all of this saying? What is, what is all of this trying to, to, to say to us here? Here it is. Okay, Now look at this thing here in Genesis chapter 1. This is where you, you first see God establishing this pattern of the seven. You, you see it here in the six days of the recreation of the earth that we talked about earlier this morning. And there's another pattern that I want you to see that develops here. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, In the evening and the morning were the first day. Look at the middle of verse 8. In the evening and the morning were the second day. Drop down to verse 13. In the evening and the morning were the third day. Verse 19. In the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Verse 23. In the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Look at the end of verse 31. In the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Okay, so now, obviously, you you got the pattern, right? I'm not reading anything into anything. The evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning. He goes through that six days. Okay, a very definite pattern. We all in agreement about that? Okay. Now, watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, watch verse 4. These are the generations. You know, it just goes right on to talk about other things. But did you notice? What did you notice? There's no evening or, or morning. Okay, now when God breaks a pattern, you got to stop. And you just got to say, okay, what's up with that? Why is, why is God breaking a, a, a pattern? And you see what God's doing through breaking that pattern is he, is he is telegraphing a message to you. He's wanting you to put the brakes on and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here? Well, what is going on here? Well, in, in the Bible, and you don't need to turn there. I think we've got it up here. Second Peter chapter three, which you find in verse eight of Second Peter chapter three, is is Peter says this. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Okay, do you get it? God's going. Hey guys, don't miss what I'm about to tell you here. Okay? Do not be ignorant of this one thing. This one thing is really significant. So I don't want you to miss this one thing. Okay, well, what is this one thing? Go on in, in verse 8. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Okay, now let, let's just let's just say that God really wanted us to take that seriously. I mean, let's just pretend that before He gave us that little equation there, that He would have said something like, "Now be not ignorant of this one thing." Okay, now let's just pretend that maybe He He got our attention like that. There's one thing that I want to make sure that you don't miss as you're putting all this together. 
What is it, God? A day is as a thousand years. Now, I mean, if he would have said something like that, we'd probably go plug that into the, cre- the, the equation that God laid out in the seven days in Genesis chapter 1. And you know what we'd find out? That God not only counts seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years, seven weeks of years, but seven millenniums. Millenniums, seven, the, the word millennium, we talked about it last week. Milli means a thousand, annum means year, okay? And we'd see that just like there were six days and then the day of rest, we'd see that God is letting us know that the earth is going to be here for a period of 6,000 years, and that last 1,000 years, which would bring it up to 7,000, is going to be a... What? Talk to me. It's going to be a rest. A rest. And strangely enough, that's exactly what Revelation 20 says is going to happen. Okay, when does the second coming of Christ take place in the book of Revelation? In chapter what? Chapter 19, right? Okay, you got the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 20, right after the second coming of Christ to this earth, what it says in Revelation chapter 20, you can go over there and... and, and and, and see it if you'd like, Revelation chapter 20, says that what is going to take place at the second coming of Christ is that the devil will be bound with a chain and thrown into the bottomless pit, check this out, for a period of 1,000 years, and Christ will rule and reign on the earth for 1,000 years. Years. In fact, if you check it out here in Revelation chapter 20, you know what's interesting? The first seven verses there, God says a thousand years. And you know what? He says a thousand years there six times before he gets to this thousand year period. Six times there, thousand years. We're, and what God is, is saying to us is there are going to be seven millenniums. Now that final one, I've set it apart. That seventh day, I've set that one apart for myself. Do you understand what that is? That's the day that you see in Revelation chapter 20. That's that millennial rest. There will be 6,000 years, and then that final 1,000 years will be a, 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 a thousand years of rest on this planet. So, what we have is there will be seven millenniums. Four of them are covered from Genesis to Jude. Then in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, in the letters to the seven churches, now we've already seen that when John gets this vision, he is catapulted to the day of the Lord to write in three tenses. That which is past would be the church age. And what you find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches. And what those seven letters to the seven churches represent are, strangely enough, seven periods of church history that bring you from the time when John was physically on this planet writing all the way up to the second coming or up to the rapture of the church, which is a period of 2,000 years. Do you understand? There were 4,000 years that brought us to the first coming of Christ. 4,000 year period that was covered. The church age will span a period of approximately 2,000 years, giving that seventh day, the millennial rest, that thousand year period, room for there to be the seven days that Second Peter talked about. Six days... And a day is as a thousand years. And the seventh day, that's mine. That's a day of rest. That's a day that I've sanctified. I've set it apart for myself. It's a day when I will cast Satan into the bottomless pit and on this planet for a period of a thousand years, there will be a rest. So, the period of time covered in the book of 
Revelation, the history that it covers, is a period of 3,000 years just in these 22 little chapters that we're dealing with here. Now, don't worry. We're not going to make it through our study sheet. Let me just show you one principle. Gleaning from what we've seen today, and then, then we'll be done. Okay, now, but now, don't let me lose you right now. Okay, we've seen this this pattern. Now, now, guys, I'm I'm not smart enough to go create all of these little things and try to make them line up. It's just a matter of the Bible lines up. The Bible. I mean, when you watch God, you're just watching a pattern. You're just watching him move. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. All you got to do is just be an observer. Remember what we saw last week? The Bible is really not difficult to understand. Just our problem is we don't always believe what we read. But if you believe what you read, that God is a God of order, a structure, and pattern, and you see him lay this thing down, and you see him work it through days and, and weeks and months and years and weeks of years, and then you begin to see Peter come along and say, now, don't be ignorant of this one thing. A day is as a thousand years, and you go plug that into all of the other of the pattern. It seems pretty obvious to me that God is once again going to work according to that same pattern. Okay, now, now watch this. So, so basically, and I think most of you are probably smart enough to understand this, we are now approaching the year 2000, which will bring us to approximately 6,000 years of human history. And it, it, it did, I don't know if you guys saw, what is it Dateline or is that what we saw Friday night? Uh, the, the whole deal. You know, they always have a little catch that they try to pull you in with. It was all about the millennium. The millennium. And everybody talking about the millennium. The millennium. And they don't all attach to it the same thing that Revelation chapter 20 says. But everybody's anticipating this millennium that's coming. So we've got 6,000 years. We know what the Bible says is going to be that final 1,000 years. But, but now watch this thing over in, in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Now, uh, some of you are going to choke on this, and uh, some of you are going to go, wow. Just according to whether or not you believe that God was really inspiring Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, and the whole pattern thing that we've been talking about. But, w- but watch this. Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 16, then, and, and if some of you are contemplating, even today, whether or not you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And boy, what a great passage for us to end on this morning. Okay? Because the Lord is going to tell you exactly what needs to take place in order for you to do that. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited? And I want you to ask yourself this question. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now now watch this. For the Son of Man shall come We sang that this morning. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Now, I want you to notice here, the event that He is talking about here is not the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church, as we saw last week, is when He comes in the clouds for His saints, and it is a secret gathering. What he is talking about here is a very public display that will take place at the second coming of Christ when he comes back in full blazing glory. That's what he's talking about. The Son shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now watch this. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, if what I said is true about verse 27, that it is referring to the second coming of Christ, 
I want you to know that if verse 28 is true, then there are some awful old people walking around this planet somewhere because that this took place almost 2,000 years ago. And he says, there are some of you that are standing here right now that are listening to my voice, and you won't die until you see the Lord coming in his kingdom. So where are these people? Are they in some cult group somewhere, or should they be heading one up? No, that's not what the Lord is saying here. The answer is in the very next passage. Don't stop your devotions. <laughs> At Matthew chapter 16 and verse 28. You include chapter 17, okay? What it says is, He takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Do you understand what is taking place here in this passage? What Jesus does is he takes Peter, James, and John, and he says, fellas, I want you to come with me. Something I want to show you. And what he does in Matthew chapter 17, he takes them up into this mountain apart, and he rolls back the veil of his flesh. You see, the Bible says that he is the image of the invisible God. He is God, but you see, he was veiled with a human body. You couldn't see that he was the blazing Shekinah glory of God. It was veiled with human flesh. And what he does is he takes Peter, James, and John up into this mountain and he rolls back his flesh before them to show them the glory that will be his when he comes in his kingdom. And you see, that's not just taking the Scriptures and making them say what I want them to say. When Peter writes about it in his epistle, what he says is, I was, listen, an eyewitness of the glory and majesty of the coming of the Lord. And when was that, Peter? When were you an eyewitness of an event that hasn't taken place yet? It says, when we were with Him in the holy mount. Okay? The Word of God, remember what we saw last week? As you compare Scripture with Scripture, the Bible explains itself. And what took place here is He takes Peter, James, and John and He shows him, shows those men exactly the way that He is going to come at His second coming. But what I, I went through all of that to show you when He did this. We came through chapter 16 and He talked about He will come. The second coming will come to this planet. Chapter 17, look at verse 1 again. And after six days, he takes them up and he says, this is how I come. And you just got to ask yourself, is he saying also, and this is when I come. Everything that the Bible lays out would lay out for us the fact that we are very definitely living in the very last days of the last days. Because of the dating and all of that, when the year 2000 comes, or if the year 2000 comes and we're not gone, I'm not going to lose my faith. I'm not going to change my teaching. All I'm going to say is the dating system, All I know we're real close with it. I know we're real close. And for some of you, maybe this is nothing more than intriguing. But for all of us that know the Lord, what this ought to do is this ought to, this ought to do something inside of us. I, I believe that for the people that are in this room today that do know the Lord, you see all of this stuff in the Bible and you believe it. You believe the Lord is coming back if we do. How can we simply believe that truth without it affecting the way that we live and what we do with our life? The Bible says every man that has this hope in him, this hope of the fact that Christ is coming back, purifies himself. Don't tell me you believe it if you're not living a pure life. And you know what, folks? Don't tell me you really believe it too unless you are actively seeking 
to bring people who are in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. That's what life is all about. And for those of you that are here this morning and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you know, the, I, 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 we went through all this stuff and the Bible talks about the fact that it is God's job to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And part of the convicting power of God is it ought to freak your head out, the thought that He is coming back and He is coming in judgment. The Bible says when he comes at the second coming in first, or Second Thessalonians chapter 1, he is, listen, he is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all of them that know not God and obey not the gospel of God. All of this ought to freak some of your head out, but know this. The Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And I want you to know this morning that the God of this universe, the ordered, structured patterned God of this universe loves you. He loved you so much that when you were in your sin and could do nothing to bring yourself out, He did for you what you could never do for yourself. He became a man, and in that fleshly human body, He took your sin, died your death, so that you could have a relationship with Him. And the loving God of this universe stands this morning wanting to do that in your life. And as our service is concluded, our pastors will be on either side of the worship center, desirous of taking you to the Word of God and showing you how you can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.